Welcome to Dumb Love. I'm Sally Brooks. And I'm Jen O'Neill Smith. And this is a podcast about all of the dumb things that people will do for love. episode 47. We are so close to 50, dude. I can't believe how long we've been doing this. Almost very, a full year. Very proud of us. Almost a year. This is the longest podcast relationship I've ever had. Uh, me too. I this mean, it's the only one, but <laughs> the longest friendship I've ever had. <laughs> oh no. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, man, thank you guys so much for everybody that tuned in for our Dumb Love Comedy Zoom show. We had such a good time. Oh, it my God. It was so much fun. We really didn't know what to expect, and we kind of went into it just like, hey, why don't we try this thing? We're, what are we doing? What are we even doing with our what lives during this doing? pandemic? And we thought it'd be a fun way to connect with fans and support some comics that we, we love and know are um, out of work. And you guys showed up. It was amazing. So many of you came and watched and donated, and we had so much fun. We had so much fun that we're going to do it again. Hell we're yeah, gonna we are. Do it again on May 8th. It's going to be so much fun. We have another amazing, crazy good lineup, people from Comedy Central, The Tonight Show, uh, Mia Jackson from Inside, Amy Schumer, a million, million people not a million, seven. We have seven people. <laughs> yeah, seven people who you're going to love because they're all our dear friends who make us laugh really hard and we know they're going to make you laugh too. So all you have to do to go to the show, if you'd like to see it, is go to our website, dumblovepodcast.com and donate any amount and all of the money goes to the performers. Who are out of work right now because of the quarantines. Yeah. And we'll give you a – it's a Zoom show. You just – you don't have to do anything. You just sit back and laugh and be entertained. Yeah. Come have a good okay. time. Hope Let's to see you quickies. there. Let's do it. Okay. Let's do it. I guess I'm going first this week. Yeah, you're first. Okay. Well, let me yeah. just tell you this. Uh, these This quickie came from a couple of articles on watch.com. Dailymail.co and an article for the Charlotte Observer written by Michael Gordon. Everybody else was Associated Press. Sally. Yes, Jim. Um, now I know, you know, you and I have never done Tinder or anything like that, but have you ever? I know, not yet. Um, <laughs> have, <laughs> you ever told any kind of white lie or pretended to be somebody you weren't to impress? A dude or get a date. I think we kind of talked about this once, right? I did. No, well, we did talked about your friend Aaron, yes. right? That pretended to be a skateboarder. Yeah, Doctor Dude. Yeah, Buck, who Doctor who told Dude a guy, Buck. <laughs> Doctor Dude Buck. Uh, yeah, who told a guy like that she was a skater and she was at a bar going like, "Dude, you just gotta. Sometimes you just gotta sacrifice your body for the board." <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So yeah, there was a lot of that, especially when I was like younger and careless and drinking there was oh yeah totally a lot of pretending to be someone I wasn't right just for funsies same I think I did that too I mean I pretended for three seasons to be really into hockey and then once <laughs> I was married I was like I hate this shit 
Zach, <laughs> shut it You're off. Like, Why do the playoffs go on so long? It's like Hot, months hug- and months. It's the hockey is the longest season ever, and um, and I was like, yeah, I was like, I'm going to the games with you. I love hockey. I love beer. I love hockey. I hate beer and I hate hockey. <laughs> um, anyway, you pulled the old bait and switch. <laughs> totally dead. Well, this past Thursday, 39 year old Rianne Brownlee from North Carolina was sentenced to three years in prison for impersonating an FBI agent on an online dating site and also on a date. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. This woman, and we'll post these selfies, of course, but she posted these selfies on dating websites, which show her wearing like different outfits or whatever, but all over her, she has these accessories, like a fake FBI badge and an ID. And she was pretending her name was Alexandria Mancini, FBI. (laughs) Dude, that's a great name. That's a great FBI agent name. And so Alex Mancini, FBI. Agent Alexandria Mancini. And then she also had what was a stolen handgun and she like had it jammed into the front of her pants. Yeah. Very Rizzoli and Isles. Very, very much. Yeah. And so (laughs) was she wearing six inch heels like they do? (laughs) Are you really going to run in those? Let me look at these selfies again. No, you can't see her shoes. You can't see her shoes. But let me tell you, she looks like she means fucking business. <laughs> She's she actually aviators on? No, but it almost looks like a camo shirt in one of them too, which, okay then. <laughs> oh my God, but this badge looks like it's made of plastic gold. Like it, it looks really <laughs> bad. But apparently, according to other documents on February 23rd of 2019, she went on a date and told a man that she was a special FBI agent conducting a counter drug operation. It's very important. And when she was very, when she was very arrested that day, (laughs) (laughs) very much arrested. When she was arrested that day, she told the same guy that she went on a date with that she had to keep her identity secret from law enforcement agencies because she was working undercover. And apparently, while she was on that date, she was also driving a stolen car. So when they looked into her, she also had prior records, including felony convictions and charges on identity theft, um, felony worthless checks, and possession of a stolen motor vehicle. Is it terrible that I think she sounds cool as fuck and I kind of want to know there? detective with her <laughs> let's go play detective <laughs> you sound fun <laughs> i i think she sounds like a blast but also i bet she'd get real old real quick because Dude. you'd be like let's hang out and then the next thing you know your car would be gone <laughs> This is the kind of shit that gets me in trouble. Like, I remember one time I had to hire someone. This girl, she accidentally cursed during her interview. And you were like, she's cool. And I was like, I like her. <laughs> <laughs> and she ended up being the worst employee ever. Oh, my God. She was horrible and ended up having to fire her. But I was like, that's what made me hire. Like, I'm an... Idiot. I'm an idiot. <laughs> no, that's like somebody you're friends with, not somebody you hire. 
I found it endearing because when she like slipped up and cursed and then caught herself, she was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And got like super red in the face. And I kind of was like, that's probably some shit I would do. Yeah. (laughs) And I I, I found it endearing. And then I was like, oh, you're horrible. She was the worst employee. That's what I get, I guess. That's what you get. (laughs) (laughs) You got a quickie for me? Oh, I got a I got a two in one quickie. What? Yeah. Okay. Right. So first of all, this comes from the coalregioncanary.com. No author. And so you know, like I believe in love of all kinds, right? I'm an equal opportunity. I love love. I believe in love between animals. I believe in friend love. Like and the you know children that are I even, our future. I believe the children are our future. <laughs> Teach them well. <laughs> Let them lead the way, you know? Uh I also believe in love of snack food. And you, I've shown that on this program before. Is this a program now? This podcast. This is a program podcast. This is a program uh, podcast. I love snacks. Let's hear I it. I know you do. And I think you're going to love these dum-dums. Okay. So the people of Schuylkill County, Pennsylvania have a lot of love for snack food. And I suspect from these two stories I'm about to tell you, also meth. Um, (laughs) So last week, a woman in Schuylkill County went out to get a package off her porch only to find that both the package and her window were covered in a brown sticky substance. And as she got closer, she was like, could this be? Is it? It is. It's chocolate pudding. Oh, my God. And she was, you know, of course, wondering why her package might be covered chocolate pudding. And so she decided to check her security camera. And when she did, she saw a man who was later identified as 24-year-old Nevin Holbin attempting to take the package from her front porch. Uh, It was just like a set of knives. But when he tried to steal the package, he was confronted by a U.S. postal worker And the mailman startled him and he dropped the package. They were like, what does he look like? The mailman goes, well, he was covered in chocolate pudding. Oh, my God. $240 (laughs) with a pudding? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to guess it's something less than $240, but, uh, but, you know, but he was definitely, he was moving and grooving. When they found him, they tracked him down and he was still... Covered in chocolate pudding. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. And so this is actually the second crime in that county in a little over a month involving snack foods. Actually, in late January, an eyewitness called the cops when they heard a loud bang outside their house. And the person who called walked outside and saw that his neighbor's gas grill was on the ground. It had previously been on a second floor porch. So he looked up and he saw this white guy looking back at him. And the caller goes, I'm going to call the police. And the guy goes, I'm going to kill you. And then the caller was like, <laughs> all right, whatever, and went inside and called 911. And so the police got there, saw that there had been a glass busted out of a door. And then they got inside thinking, like, this robber is not going to still be there. But there he was, standing in front of the refrigerator, just eating Reese's peanut butter cup after Reese's peanut butter cup. They had that many peanut butter cups? I guess so. Maybe a package. Maybe it was like a Christmas, like leftover Christmas. Maybe like one of their kids was like selling them for a school. um, (laughs) You know, when like your school would make you sell candy. 
Oh, yeah. And you you had boxes and boxes of chocolate at home, and then you would eat them, but then they were for ballet class, and your ballet teacher would be like, you need to lose weight. And you were like, well, then why do you make me sell all this fucking candy? (laughs) Did that ever happen to you? (laughs) 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 No, but the chocolate pudding thing, that's so funny because my sister and I did not get along at all growing up. We fought like cats and dogs. And I remember there was this one day that my sister – it was like a whole back and forth of like, I put whipped cream under her door and jumped on the bag. And then she wrote, fuck you in pudding and put it <laughs> on my door, on my white door. And my, it stained the door. And my dad flipped out on me and like punished me. And I was like, dad, why would I write fuck you on my own door and pudding? <laughs> Obviously, I did not do this, but I got grounded. You got grounded, which yeah, like yeah, it wasn't me. I would never. She was like, I don't know, it's not my door. It's her door. I was like, Dad, (laughs) why would I write "fuck you" on my own door? (laughs) Put (laughs) in. That's crazy. Oh man, those are some good snack snack quickies. Like yeah, good. People love snacks so much. People do go to jail for them. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, that's my quickies. Love it. All right, you got oh, a crazy okay. story? Yeah, I do have a crazy story for you. This one's pretty crazy. It comes from True Crime Daily, MLive.com, two different articles written by one written by Heather Lynn Peters, one written by John S. Hausman, and an article for the Winnipeg Free Press by Mike McIntyre. And then All also right. from Mike an Mac? episode of Forbidden Dying for Love. Forbidden dying for love? Dying for love. Yes. All right. Okay. In 2001, Leanne Chafin, which is actually Sally's maiden name. <gasps> Any relation, Sally? She's originally from Winnipeg. Oh, and no. Okay. But she met Timothy Shannon at school at Spring Arbor College. Leanne was there getting a bachelor's degree in early education. And her and Tim hit it off and they kept in contact. It says that rather than like all the articles that I read, it doesn't say like they dated. It just said they kept in contact for five years before Leanne finally agreed to marry him. How romantic. (laughs) How romantic. So in 2006, Leanne and Tim got married, and they lived in Hart, Michigan, which is a small Oceana County town in Michigan, uh, with their two (laughs) young children, a boy and a girl, both born a year apart. Tim's family was pretty famous in that town. They were very wealthy, and he was – he, Tim, was a prominent local councilman. According to her cousin, they were both so popular in the community. He was on council, and his father was a doctor, and his family owned some orchards too. Leanne was said to be – everybody said that she was like Mother Teresa. Like she was – really popular because everybody loved her and she was so kind and worked in the community and she worked with underprivileged kids. Like she was like a saint. Everybody okay. loved Leanne. But Leanne also did struggle with depression here and then. Mm-hmm. But we all Who doesn't? Do. Who among us? Who among doesn't? us? Who among us? <laughs> but according to um, Leanne's cousin too, Tim's family was pretty 
controlling. She likened it to the handmaid's tale. She said that what, it really? was very yeah, that it was very much like that's and, not just controlling. That's yeah, like that they just had this idea of yeah, maybe that's a bit dramatic on the part of her cousin, but she said the family was like, you know, church going wealthy family that just had an idea of what their family should be and that they wanted to kind of mold Leanne to become a part of that. And maybe that's why she was depressed. I don't know, but it was right. pretty, <laughs> pretty controlling. But they were very committed to their church, which was the First Baptist Church of Heart. And so they went to their church, you know, religiously. <laughs> and so, um, and one day while they were at church, the pastor of the church was speaking to all of his church people <laughs> saying, you know, about, he said that, you know, I can that, tell that you go to church a lot. <laughs> <laughs> can you? Parishioners <laughs> was speaking to everybody saying that, you know, that they needed help because that there was a new member of the church, uh, a 20 year old homeless girl named Jamie Hathaway. And they said that she was a foster child, but that the relationship with her last foster mother had broken down and now she was left on her own. And even though she was 20, you know, but she still didn't have any where to go and didn't have any money. And so Mm -hmm. he asked the church for donations. He was trying to raise money to help her get back on her feet. Yeah. But Leanne saw this as an opportunity to do something really good. You know, she always wanted to help underprivileged people. And so she was like, to her husband, she was like, Tim, why don't we foster her? Why don't we ask her to live with us? And now they were only in their early 30s and Jamie was 20. So it was a little Uh strange that, you know, she wasn't a child. She was a young woman. But Leanne said that, you know, she grew up in a house with foster children. Her her parents always fostered children. They always had a big giving heart and that it created so much love in the house. And it was just such a great experience having all these kids around that she knew that she wanted to have that experience as well in her home. And right. she thought maybe that Jamie could help take care of the kids and be a nanny, you know, it, that it would be great. And so they did. They took in this girl, Jamie Hathaway, and for a while, everything was amazing. Like Leanne couldn't have been more thrilled. The kids loved Jamie. Jamie loved the kids. Leanne and her got along really well and fit right in. And they were like one big family. Jamie would even call them mom and dad. Again, a little weird because she's 20 and they're in their early 30s, but right. <laughs> they were a family. And yeah. so that's great. Yeah. Think, but probably yeah. not. Well, we'll see. And so <laughs> in April of 2012, Tim and Jamie started spending a lot of time together. Did you see yeah. this coming? Did I you? I did, Jen. I so did. They were spending a lot of time together and she would visit him at work and stuff. And so they follow- were spending a lot of time together. And she was also calling him dad? Yeah. Okay. And she would okay. visit him at work, mm-hmm. daddy. And oh, follow him no, around. no, no. <laughs> I had to. She, she'd follow him around like a little puppy. And the people, you know, Hart was a really small town and a real mm-hmm. Baptist town and a religious town. And so they, they all started to talk, all the people in the town. So there were mm-hmm. – Rumors circulating, of course, about the two of them having an affair. And I know that this might come as a huge shock to you, Sally, but they were having an affair. (laughs) (laughs) They really were. The rumors were true. I am shocked. (laughs) Flabbergasted. Onto your hat. You mean Um, this man who 
was so religious that his family was trying to mold another woman to their ways would have an affair? I can't believe it. It's, that doesn't sound right. Unless I'm reading this wrong, <laughs> that's what happened. <laughs> or watching the watching the shows wrong. But of course, Tim and Jamie denied everything. They mm-hmm. were like, what are you talking about? We're just, you know, this is my dad. <laughs> and so <laughs> Leah never suspected a thing. In her eyes, they were all just one big happy family. In fact, in June of 2012, Leanne wanted to make it official and she decided to adopt Jamie. She said that she wanted them that them to be a family legally, even though you know Jamie was 20, she wanted Jamie to feel like she belonged to a family for good. You and know? She was like, you assholes, I'm gonna make this real awkward. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. And so when Tim told his family about their plan to adopt her, they were not okay with it. They were like, they were like dummy, you're effing her. Yeah. And so they, you know, they had heard about the rumors around town and about their affair. And they knew that the whole idea of them adopting this girl would just only cause more of a spectacle. And, you know, yeah. they were very concerned with the way that their family looked. And like I said, Tim's family was very controlling and they controlled their their children through financial help. So his father threatened to cut off his trust fund if they adopted Jamie. And Tim was like, oh shit. Leanne saw this as an opportunity to cut themselves off from his family. She was tired of being controlled by them. She was like, you know what? They can't tell us what to do. I want to adopt her. And this is good. Let's stop being under their thumb. Let's live our own lives. So she ended up getting a job as a motel clerk at night for extra money since they were financially cut up from his family. So in the meantime, while she was gone working, that just left more time alone for Tim and Jamie to be together and to bang and act as a family without Leanne there. And so Jamie starts to become very comfortable in this role that she's playing of, you know, playing house, and being the mother and the wife while Leanne's gone. And she wants Leanne out of the picture permanently. So she wants Tim to leave Leanne so that they can be together. But Tim is, of course, having a hard time leaving her. She's the mother of his children. And then also like his church and his parents, what would they think? How would I mean, they she's react? She's also the adoptive mother of his lover. <laughs> right? That's <laughs> so, very complicated. The So the adoption never actually went through. It just took a long time legally right. that it actually never happened. But they were moving in the direction of adopting her. Right. And so Jamie wanting Tim to leave and is getting frustrated. She ends up turning the heat up on him and tells him, like, listen, if you don't leave her, I'm going to take my own life. You know, ye old suicide threat. Yeah. And so he – so. Tim is like, okay, okay, like, you know, I'll leave her. I just need a little more time. A year later, when Leanne comes home from work, Tim and Jamie sit her down at the table and they tell her oh. everything. Oh my God. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? They tell they told her that we're having an affair, we're in love. And Tim tells her that he's gonna leave her so that they can be together. And of course, Leanne's mind is fucking blown and she loses her shit. You know, yeah. she was like, hey, What the hell? You're our daughter. I took you in. I was gonna adopt you. How could you do this to me? You know? And Leanne immediately kicks Jamie out of the house. She's like, You have to get out of here, get out of this house immediately. And so Jamie ends up moving into 
a room in an apartment with another young woman in the meantime. But Tim still is like, I still, I want a divorce. And Leanne is like, no way. We're not getting a divorce. Like, we're going to work through this. We're going to go to counseling. Mm -hmm. So things were not good in the Shannon home at this time. And then on... Can you imagine sleeping next to a man who's like, oh, by the way, the last year... When you were out working at night to support our family because my parents cut us off because you wanted to adopt this young woman because you're a fucking saint. Yeah, I've been sleeping with her and now I'm gonna go be with her. Oh my god! Oh my god! And then he stays in the house. Yeah, she like she wants him in the house. She wants to stay with him. She wants Mm -hmm. them to work it out. And so on December 29th of 2011 at 11 a.m., Tim Shannon calls the police to report that he found 32-year-old Leanne Shannon, his wife, at home in the bathroom, drowned in the bathtub. I was really hoping she would kill him. No, I was hoping not to, but no. But he told the police that earlier the evening before that she had bought several bottles of Boone's Farm and Everclear and was drinking her sorrows away. Yeah, because she she was depressed. What is she, 19? I know, apparently. (laughs) Was she 19 year old me? Apparently she was not a drinker, but during that short amount of time when they were going through this, she did drink her pain away. So maybe she was just kind of like, I'll have one alcohol, please. You know what I mean? Like, I don't (laughs) – And so she was just – They were like, here's our starter kit. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Everclear and Boone's Farm. (laughs) So Don't get fucked up. Yeah. And so Tim tells the police that she was drunk and she had passed out and she must have slipped under the water. And then he tells the police about her depression and says that he thinks that she might have even committed suicide. So that's what her death was ruled as, as it was an accidental death slash maybe suicide. Mm -hmm. And so when he called her parents in Winnipeg to tell her that she had passed away, he told them that she had taken her own life. You dirty dog piece of shit. And so not even a day after Leanne's death, Jamie moves back into the house. And Jamie is and Jamie just assumes that like, oh, okay, well now to get we can be together and be public about it. And so everyone at the funeral was like, this is not right. Something right. is so fucked up. They were like, Leanne would never kill herself. She would never do that to her children. She, like, yeah. she just would never do that. And Tim, of course, ordered an immediate cremation, which is always a telltale sign that something is amiss. Her family and friends all reach out to the police and they're like, something's up. Like, you cannot just take this, his word for it, that she slipped under the, uh, under the water. Like even the pastor of their church wrote the police a letter begging them to investigate. And so, because he knew that their bathtub was very, very small and that it would have been hard for her to slip under the water because apparently um, she was 280 pounds and they were like, it's a tiny tub. Like how mm-hmm. would her body even get under enough to to drown. But the chief of police in the town of Hart was Tim's friend because, you know, he was a councilman. Uh, right. And he oh, was right. like, oh. I forgot about that part. Yeah. And so he was like, oh, it looks like an ac- accidental death. There's nothing we can do. Nothing we can do. And then Leanne's cousin, Deborah, turns to the county sheriff's office right away. Detective Shane Hasty was like, there's no feasible way 
for, and this is a quote from him. He said, there's no feasible way for a 280 pound person in a small five foot tub with an inclined back that their head could even get below the waterline. This is crazy. And so on January 8th, 2013, the Hart police had to hand the case over to the county. And right away, they're like, what is up with the work you guys? And there was only nine photos taken of the crime scene. That's crazy. What? Like nine. And then when they listened like, to I the take nine- more of, I take more- more photos of just like my kid looking at a bug or something, you know? Yeah, or like the lunch I made today. Right. And so I love those artichokes, looked amazing. <laughs> Thank you. They tasted amazing. And so when they listened to the 911 tapes, they said that Tim was acting so weird in the 911 tapes. Like when he called the police, he told them that they said, oh, well, what temperature is the water? And he was like, oh, I don't know. I already drained the tub. I'm like, why? Like, why would you do that? You know, the whole thing just seems strange and his reaction seems strange. Yeah. And then when they talked to other people, of course, everybody was like, you know, there were rumors about the affair and other people that were connected to them had reached out to the police. Like the girl that Jamie had moved in with, Stacy uh-huh. Skorupa was her name. She told the police, like, I thought that they were planning something. She said that when the couple was there in the room together, that they acted very suspiciously on several occasions. She said that whenever they were together in the room, they were abnormally quiet. You couldn't hear anything happening, almost like they were going in there to whisper and conspire. Like it yeah. was just like strange. And so- They called Jamie down to the police station for questioning, and Jamie right away was like, yeah, we're having an affair. We had an affair. Yeah, I love him, and he loves me. She even told them that, you know, I'm supposed to move in on the day that she died, but the Leanne's drowning threw a wrench in the works. Yeah. Oh, and so sorry. Did her dr- her dying oh, screw up your plans? Sorry. And then they asked Jamie. They said, "Have you ever thought about killing Leanne?" And she says, and it's so chilling when she says this, and you could hear it in the the audio tapes. She said, "There were times I wanted to smack her, yeah, but to actually kill her, not really." Is that so fucked? Yeah. So. Jamie had told them everything that, you know, that she had already started moving her belongings into the house and that they were packed in bins sitting in Tim's storage shed. And when the cops raided the shed, they found a ton of evidence, incriminating evidence. They, They saw documents in her handwriting saying that they were planning to go to Las Vegas to get married. She had a checklist of things that she wanted to do before getting married. And so it showed Was one of them drown? Well, what's crazy is that in her diaries, she had on her list of things, um, she had actually written a note that said burn after dying, <gasps> which they kind of took to mean burn after Leanne was killed. There's There was all these other references on a piece of a notebook paper that had a list of things to do in it with the things that said, quote, uh, death surrounds the mother. And um, and then there was a label on on top of a box that said, go through last after Leanne leaves. What? Yeah. They even found jewelry that belonged to Leanne's mother that had gone missing from the house. Jamie had stolen it. And there was a family photo. This is so like a movie. It's crazy. There was a family photo of all of them, but Leanne was folded out of the picture. That's like Hand the Rocks or Cradle shit. Yes, that's what I was just thinking. Yeah. Oh my God. That's such a And so, of course, when they went through their computers, they found racing messages between Jamie and Tim 
also. Mm-hmm. On chats, they would send naked pictures, you know, sex yeah. talk or whatever, and like plans <laughs> on meeting. That's what it says. It says it in the article. They say sex talk. That's not so, my so word. Prim. So sexy talk. Sex talking. <laughs> talking about sex. Um <laughs> That's what, the, that's what the article said. And so, but even though they had all of that evidence, all of it, they still didn't have enough to arrest her and they had to let her go. Um, because I guess, it could, I mean, that's mostly just evidence of the affair, right? Or that they, yeah. And that they yeah. wanted her to move out and they had asked her to move out. So, yeah. yeah. And so Oof. they, they bring Tim in for questioning. And right away, you know, they ask him, are you having an affair? He says, yes. And they're like, all right, look, we don't care about the fact that you were having an affair. We just want to know what happened to Leanne. He tells them that he was filing for divorce from his wife and that him and Jamie planned to get married in Vegas. But he claimed that it was just a coincidence that Leanne accidentally drowned in the tub the day that Jamie was moving in. Mm-hmm. When they had some questions about the way that she was found in the bathtub, he kind of gave them a weird explanation for that, which made no sense. Like he said that because she was a larger woman, and it was a smaller tub that when she took a bath, she would have to scooch up against the shower wall above the nozzle. What? And they were like, Detective Hasty said, well, that doesn't seem logical. Nobody takes a bath like that. And that raised suspicion. So when they kept calling him out on these like weird things. So she would, basically, um, they were saying she would like basically like butts at one end, legs straight up in the air so that she could lay back. I guess. I don't know. I'm having a hard time placing it, but it it just doesn't – it sounds weird. And they knew that something was up. When they started grilling him, after only 30 minutes of questioning, Tim caves. And he tells them, quote, I didn't intend for her to die. We were intending on moving her out to her mother's. We went to get her out of the tub, and she was staying there, staying drunk, and she started hitting me, so I just sit on her. That's what he said. So they were like, wait, wait, what? You know, the police were like, excuse me? So then they immediately were like, all right, we're going to redo your rights. And they gave him his rights, and but he keeps talking. And then so she said that he, he was drunk, flat on her back, and he was trying to get her up. But he she grabbed him and pulled him in so that he just basically got on top of her and held her under the water until she stopped breathing. That's the other option. Yeah. Like if somebody doesn't get out of the bath, it's like, okay, well, you're not going to get out of the bath and I'm going to sit on you and drown you. Yeah. Yeah. Like he just, I guess, lost it or whatever. So prosecutor Joseph Eisen said that after Tim Shannon drowned his wife, Tim changed his clothes and then waited several hours before calling 911. He said that they believe that in between him pushing her under the water and 911, that he changed his clothes and put his clothes in the laundry because they were wet. So mm-hmm. that's how they knew it was, I guess that's how they knew it was a few hours. So he was arrested and held without bail and charged with one count of murder. And despite all of the diary entries and evidence that they found in the plastic bins at the house, Jamie Hathaway was not charged with anything in connection to Leanne's murder. Not only that, but she became a witness for the prosecution. What? Yeah. Uh huh. And so, having gone over all the evidence that they were not able to determine premeditation or plan that she was supposed 
to die. So Mm -hmm. Tim pled no contest and was convicted of second degree murder. And he's serving a minimum of only 13 years, which is some bull ass bullshit. And he will be out as early as 2024. Nothing happened to Jamie at all. And Tim's parents have custody of Leanne's children who at the time of her death were only three and four years old and they are raising her children. His parents? His parents. Oh, those horrible people? I know. Yep. The Handmaid's Tale people. I know. It's not a good story. It's crazy for a reason. a bad story. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) When are you going to do a crazy story with a happy ending? (laughs) Do they make those? I don't no. know. Oh, man. Yeah. No. Well, that is, a, that is a really crazy story. You did such a good job with it. I was on the edge of my seat. And also, fuck those people. Fuck those people. Hey, Jen. Hey, Sally. Are you ready for a happy story? I think we could all use one right about now. Well, too bad. No, I'm just – well, this one – no, this one has – this one is a happy story. But I just want to say it does have some sad moments. But I promise – that we're going to be in happy town at some okay. points. <laughs> okay. I trust you. I trust the process. Okay. So this is – I got my information from Reader's Digest article by Sean Kirst, a Today.com article by Megan Houlihan, and a Metro – Of the oh, Houlihan yeah. fame? <laughs> yeah. The Megan Houlihan. <laughs> Uh, in a Metro.co.uk article by Claire Gilbody Dickerson and a Center for Disability Rights article by a man named Dominic Evans. Okay. Um, this is a story of Chris and Paul Sharon DeForge. So when Chris Sharon was a young girl, she used to cut wedding photos for magazines and hang them on her wall. And she always dreamed of, as her sister says, being a me within a we. And I think that's so sweet. Aww. <laughs> yeah, she just wanted love. And so in 1988, she was at a dance in Syracuse, New York, which is where she's from. And she spotted Paul DeForge across the dance floor and she immediately fell in love. On that day, she says that she looked into Paul's eyes and saw my future. And the two were a couple from that minute. Paul was funny and emotionally supportive and Chris was caring and she was kind of the couple's social coordinator. She made all the plans. She had the friends. Um, And Chris says that it was Paul's sense of humor that made her so sure that he was the one for her. And Chris was actually the one who proposed to Paul. And she says it was like just a spontaneous feeling she had. And she whispered in his ear, she said, would you marry me? And And she says, he looked up at me with this big, beautiful smile and shook his head. Yes. And The reason this story is so remarkable and worth telling on the podcast is because there is actually really nothing remarkable about their love. They're just two people who found each other in a normal way and fell in love and wanted to get married and live a quiet life together. But what makes it kind of a revolutionary story is that both Chris and Paul happen to be people with Down syndrome. So even though they're both, they met when they were both adults and they had jobs and there were so many people in their lives that were against the idea of them getting married. And at the time, in this was like in 1988, like Chris and Paul seemed like the only couple with intellectual disability that were actually considering getting married. That it just wasn't something that you heard of very much. Right. And and so it actually took five years before they were allowed to walk down the aisle. 
And Chris's sister- Allowed from their parents or- From people, like from well-meaning people who were like felt like they knew better. So I think their families were concerned, but their families were generally very supportive of them as like as individuals. Um, gotcha. But it was more like, you know, they both lived in um, supportive living homes. And so a lot of times people, especially adults with disabilities, will be guardians of the state because their medical expenses are so high. I think that there was, because they were wards of the state, there were people who were very against it. So Chris's sister says that they were treated like children. They had to go undergo marriage classes, counseling sessions, and and there were a lot of people that just thought they knew better than Chris and Paul. She said there really Mm -hmm. was quite a bit of resistance. There was a feeling that it was like children getting married versus two very capable adults. And this issue of marriage equality for the disability community is not new. There was, I mean, in the early 1900s, there was eugenics, which is where people of, with disabilities were sterilized against their will and they were also prevented oh, from God. getting married. And there's actually many states where people with intellectual disabilities, mental disabilities, epilepsy, physical disabilities were prevented by law from getting married. And to this day, a lot of those state laws, even though they're not enforced, they haven't been repealed. And people believe like it's protecting people with disabilities like because they think, oh, they're unable to make their own decisions and people who are affected usually don't really have a platform. They right. have intellectual they don't have the resources. Yeah, to like to, to yeah, to fight back. So, you know, they're people with intellectual disabilities, people with severe physical disabilities, or people who like can't communicate in a typical way. So a lot of it, I mean, so much of it just stems from people viewing adults with disabilities as children. And I think that a lot of people don't, a lot of society doesn't want to think of people with disabilities as having sexual needs and companionship needs like everybody else. But of course they do. And so even today, people with disabilities face not only like these legal obstacles and discrimination, but also kind of these practical barriers to marriage. Because like, like I was saying, like a lot of people with disabilities, because their medical bills and home health care costs are so high, they have to rely on public benefits to get these services. And there's often a penalty, like people will lose their benefits if they get married. So basically the idea is like, well, if you have a disability and you get married, then you are your spouse's, like you're the burden of the spouse, not the state anymore. But if two people who are on these benefits get like can't get married- because then they'll yeah. both lose their benefits. So, oh. but Chris and Paul were both used to having people doubt them, like have used to having people tell them no, and they both got really good at ignoring those people and defying expectations. When Paul was born, doctors actually told his mother not to expect much from him, but she knew that he was capable of having a rich life. And at a young age, he actually, he mastered the bus system in Syracuse. He got a job. He spent many years working at the ARC, um, which is a community organization that advocates for people with developmental disabilities. And actually in 2013, the ARC where he worked named him the person of the year for the whole organization. Wow. Yeah, which is like pretty amazing, right? So, and Chris also had her struggles. Like she says that her parents were very supportive of her independence. But when she was a child, she actually had to spend a year in a state institution because her father died and her mother became ill and there wasn't anyone to care for her. 
And she oh felt- Oh my God, that's so heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking. And she was so isolated. Oh. And she says that that isolation is what made her crave having a partner in life. She didn't want to be alone. And so both and both have like repeatedly have strangers who are cruel and dismissive and call them the R word without thinking about it, like not thinking that it's hurtful because they think, oh, well, this person can't. Oh my god, Someone like Chris or Paul are even can even grasp what they're saying, you know? And in the 80s, like, for instance, just last night, it's crazy that you're saying this because just last night we were watching um, Problem Child and Zach and I remember that as being, oh my God, we loved this movie when we were little. You guys are going to love it too. Uh And then we played it for them and they used the R word in it a couple of times and we had to stop it and like explain to the kids, this is not a word that you say. You know, and my my kids are like, what does that even mean? And But it's like, that was in a children's movie. It was such. I mean, I'm. I know. I am sure. I said it. You know. Like, oh, I'm well, yeah. Sure I did. It was just like such a throwaway word. When I was right out of college, I worked for this organization called Best Buddies, and it was a friendship program be- between people with intellectual disabilities and without. So we would go into schools and start these clubs. And so kids not in special ed and kids in special ed would form these pairs and do activities. But like, but when I started, and so this was in 2002, 2001, the term was still mental retardation. And it was like, while I worked there that it changed. And so, yeah, so it's something that is totally evolving, but it is like shocking to kind of hear it now. Yeah. I think, I think that a lot of people just think that, oh, you know, it's not hurtful (laughs) and it is very hurtful. So anyway, so after five years of being engaged, Chris, who is the planner was like, I want to plan my wedding. I'm ready to get married. So her sister actually helped her push forward with the planning And then on August 13th, 1993, the two tied the knot. Uh, Chris's sister was the maid of honor and Paul's brother was the best man. And they had a reception for 150 guests. Um, And they had this couple who had already bucked the system in so many ways. They continued to do so by, in 1993, they took each other's last names and they became Chris and Paul Sharon DeForge, which I'm like, I hadn't even heard of that in 1993. So I'm like, look at these. Like first she... Proposes to him and then, like, wow, like, fuck society. Hell yeah. So, and then they had kind of against all these expectations, just an incredibly fulfilling and long lasting marriage. Over the years, Chris loved cooking for Paul and they often bowled and attended dances together. They vacationed at Chris's sister's camp in the Adirondack Mountains and they became godparents to her sister's daughter, and they always supported and comforted each other. Chris's sister said they've been a role model for unconditional positive love in a relationship. And they lived together in this cozy apartment in Syracuse until Paul, at age 54, developed dementia. And then in 2018, the state decided that Paul's condition meant that he needed to move into a community residence that had intensive nursing care, and that he was going to be moved there without Chris. And Chris says, when they told me, I started to cry. He's my life. I don't want to be without him. Oh. And their families worked very hard to keep them together. They thought that Chris and Paul deserved a chance to make the same decisions as any couple when one partner has dementia. And Chris's sister said, you know, they should be able to define their own lives. They know what is good for them. And then the New York State Office for People with Developmental Disabilities was like, well, 
Paul can't stay in this home. Like it's not, it's not set up for him. He can't get, he needs around the clock care. And so the family's actually found a new department that met the state standard that would be accessible. But by the time the state agreed, Paul's condition had deteriorated so much that they they were like, he does need to go to a facility where he can get the care and the accessibility they needed. Aww. And so Chris was disappointed, but she still continued to visit Paul regularly. They spent weekends together and Chris still cooked for him. Then in August of 2018, Chris was actually in the hospital with pneumonia for two weeks, but it was also their 25th wedding anniversary. And so the people at the hospital arranged it so they could renew their wedding vows at the chapel in the hospital. And at the time, they were actually the longest married couple with Down syndrome. So they had been there. Their marriage lasted longer than most people's and longer than any other couple with Down syndrome. And then Paul's dementia continued to worsen. And while he stopped recognizing almost all of his family, he never once forgot Chris. Paul died in August of 2018 at the age of 56. And Chris oh, so held young. I know. Chris held a memorial for him at his at her sister's camp in the Adirondacks and scattered his ashes at the lake where Paul loved to fish. And Chris said about Paul, he opened up my world. And she says she just wants others to know that people like us need to have a chance, a chance to find the man of your dreams like I did. Oh, sweet. That's my story. It's so sweet. Oh, it's so sweet. So heartbreaking, but also so sweet and so true that, of course, people with Down syndrome deserve to be loved and have love and find love and be in love. Yeah. Of course they do. Everyone does. Everyone yes. does. Yeah. Oh my gosh. They're really sweet and I can't wait to show. I can't wait to post pictures. Oh. They're really cute. A yeah. uh, really cute couple. Their wedding photo is like straight 80s. <laughs> oh, I <laughs> love early it. Early 90s, straight 80s, big puffy sleeves and lace. It's great. Nice. Um, okay, Jen, are you ready to do something okay. dumb and something we love? I am. Are you? go you? first. I am ready. All right. So something dumb is that, you know what I miss? So much restaurants. I miss ordering restaurants. I miss people bringing it to me. Mm -hmm. I miss, uh, I mean, not that I haven't had plenty of alcohol during this quarantine, but I miss (laughs) ordering a drink and having it prepared and brought to me. I do miss that. You know what else I miss? Not having to do dishes. Oh my god! I do dishes like ten times a day now. Oh, that's that's right. You don't have. Oh, it's the worst. uh, You know, it's breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and it's just so many dishes. It's too much. So many dishes. (laughs) But um, I miss that. But what I love is that there are still all. I have a lot of friends that are restaurant owners in the city of Atlanta, and there are still um so many ways that you can still support these businesses and still, you know, they're still making food. There's lots of places that you can just drive right up and have contactless delivery. They can bring it to you. A lot of people are delivering. By the way, if you live in the city of Decatur in Atlanta, there is Kelly's Market. If you call them and it's so great, you could talk to somebody on the phone. He can give you wine recommendations 
And they sell wine, they sell beer, they sell like anything that you would get from a market. And then within like hours, it's delivered to your door. So I called and I was like, it's amazing. And then um, Argosy, it's owned by my friends Armando Solitano and Donald Durant, Ben Rhodes. They own this really great restaurant called Argosy. I run a show there. Check it out when we're not quarantined. (laughs) But it's an amazing restaurant. You can pull up. It's in East Atlanta. You can just pull up and they're selling their beer and their food and you can um, just roll it to the front and buy it. The Scepter, their new brewery that they just opened, you can literally just drive up in the parking lot and pick up their six packs of craft brewed beer to go. The Midway Pub in East Atlanta, they're doing like family style meals to go. Just some folk art in downtown Decatur. Order food from these smaller businesses that need your help because we want them to be there when this is all over. Yes. We want them there because life would be very sad without restaurants. So sad. And bars. Oh, that's a good one. I forgot yeah, a very important do. one. Um, my friend Emerald City Bagels, which is also in East Atlanta owned by my mm-hmm. friend Jackie Hellcrow, who's amazing. They have what's called the Bagel Fairy. And if you call them up and you order, it'll just del- show up on your doorstep the next morning, a fresh box of the most delicious bagels you have ever had with cream cheese. So Emerald City Bagels, Check out the bagel fairy. That sounds amazing. I've been craving a bagel. Get that bagel. I'm gonna do I'm gonna get that bagel. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it. <laughs> okay. Uh okay. here's here's what's dumb is that I'm sure you are feeling this too, and I think all parents is that it's just so hard to do anything. It's so hard to feel like you're doing good at anything, like your job yeah. and parenting, and you know, so I just I appreciate those people that are out there helping parents like trying to help parents and one of those people jen yeah is what i love once again this week is fucking dolly parton what did she do again dolly she's the best man she has launched a youtube bedtime series called good night with dolly where you can listen to her yes read Two children's books. And not only that, that is like just that's like a cool thing. But here's the amazing thing that she has done. Dolly Parton has donated a million dollars to research into the to research the coronavirus vaccine. Um, she has a longtime friend who is a researcher at Vanderbilt. Um, Vanderbilt is working on a vaccine and she has donated a million dollars to help. Dude, Dolly's gonna save the fucking world. She's gonna save the world. I know. Just with her smile. Just, just with, with her, her smile and beautiful her beautiful smile and cheery disposition. And her like fun catchphrases. Like, like <laughs> I had you know what I had to do? I had to like it was either shit or get off the pot, you know? Oh, I Dolly. love her. I love I can't her. Wait so to anyway, some great, sorry. great okay. one. We did it. So you guys, thank you for another amazing week. I hope you're doing all right. Let us know if there's anything that we can do to help. If you need anything, we'll read bedtime stories to you. <gasps> We will read it. Hey, if Dolly can do it, we can do it. I'm not the best reader, but yeah, I'm not like Ben loves to make me cold read things because I'm so bad at it. (laughs) So bad at it. I can't pronounce anything. I skip over words. It's such a bad, it's bad. But yeah, let us know. We'll we'll read. And uh, you know, do all the things. Rate and review, hit us up, and come to our dumb love comedy show on Friday. You can donate anything, it could be a dollar. Just any amount over a dollar and you get a Zoom link. And then it's just, it's like a hangout. It's just like all of us in a really intimate setting hanging out together. Yeah. And it's 
fun. It's super fun. So we hope to see you then. Um, And until then, you know, stay safe, be happy. And stay at home and do something dumb for love. Dum-da-dum, dum-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum.